This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is the amazing Sean Pelton. Many of us know Sean as the longtime drummer in the house band for Saturday Night Live, but Sean has performed and recorded with many artists such as Cheryl Crow, Sean Colvin, Billy Joel, Van Morrison, Elton John, Rod Stewart, Johnny Cash, just to name a few. He has played on several Grammy-winning records for artists including Ray Charles, the Brecker Brothers, Shakira, and Sean Colvin, Les Paul, and the Hank Williams tribute album with Bob Dylan. Since 2007, Sean has regularly appeared as the drummer on Daryl Hall's internet concert series, Live from Daryl's House. One of the really cool gigs of note that Sean has been involved with is a double drumming with Steve Gadd on the live performance of a show called Love Rocks NYC. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I do here at the podcast, you can become a Patreon member. Find us at patreon.com slash working drummer. Any donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content that's provided by our former guests. This content covers a variety of topics, but it's all educational and applicable to the working professional. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can find links to both of these things on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. And while you're there, you can find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done over the years. And no matter what your platform of choice is for listening to podcasts, giving us a like, a rating, and review always helps us grow. So Sean is one of those players that we've been wanting to connect with for quite some time. And big shout out to Tim Hepburn for connecting me with Sean. Tim was instrumental in connecting me with Stephen Wolf, who I had a chance to interview a couple months ago and really appreciated that. You will probably hear a little bit of wonkiness from my microphone, and I apologize for that. That is not the standard we like to set on this podcast, but it's clear enough from my end, but luckily, Sean's recording is pristine and wonderful, and he talks 90% of the time as well he should. And I hope you really enjoy this conversation I had with Sean Pelton. great teachers like I um, I was always really hungry to learn and um, I was one of those guys that was always trying to chase people around and say hey man could you know could drop by and try to have a lesson or something you know and like <laughs> so I've been really lucky um, I got to stay with Alan Dawson for yep. a couple summers which was um, I mean it's just hard to put in words you know like he's such a, been a great spirit for so many people and um you know, and this was sort of before the whole era of YouTube and 
and where there's so much great stuff online. And um, Alan's thing was so cool and structured, like his lessons were built into three different parts. It would be like an hour lesson, and the first 20 minutes would be on just the rudiment thing, and he would give you three rudiments a week. And, you know, you didn't go to the next ones until you completely nailed the three that he gave you, you know? Yeah. And, um, and then the thing is, he had this thing called the ritual, which was like, you know, uh, kind of this legendary thing that people talk about where it was all, it was 15 pages of all these rudiments cut sort of tied together in four bar phrases. And, um, you would play them over like an ostinato with the bass drum, sort of like the samba thing, like doom, chat, doom, chat, doom, or the uh, the bayon thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure about the doom, 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 and then you'd play all these rudiments. <clears throat> and you had to memorize it, and you had to play with brushes, too. And uh, so that was like sort of the first 20 minutes, and then he did this, had this whole thing with the syncopation book, which was really cool because, uh, you know, the syncopation book is just sort of these pages of rhythms, you know. Right, right. But he had all these different concepts of of applying different things, independence and different stuff to these rhythms. And then the last 20 minutes, uh, you would play with him. He'd get on the vibes, and, and you know, you'd get to actually make music with him. And um, so, man, I, that was really a gift to be able to be around that. Um, and then I got to, st- you know, I was I went to school in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, and it was there was a jazz program there. And um, I got to study privately with this, the guy that ran the program, David Baker, who wasn't necessarily a drummer, but that was a really insightful thing about getting, like, sort of the drum lesson hang from somebody that wasn't a drummer. I wonder, like from that experience what was one of the things that you noticed was unique about a non-drummer being a teacher well what was cool about it is that you're getting input from the musicians that are on the receiving end of what it is you're doing so like he didn't give a shit about maybe how much technique you had but like he would focus on hey man he said when you go to sit in and play or or you musicians are going to for in a jazz context, they're going to really zero in on your right-hand feel, you know, with the right symbol and the whole thing. And, like, it was just interesting how the perspective of, like, having a great right-hand feel that, you know, and grooving your ass off in a way that wasn't about, well, what kind of independence can I do with my bass drum against it, like the Chapin book or something. I mean, which is all a great tool, but, like, he also got right into, like, making music and, you know playing like Charlie Parker type improvisate, like thinking musically about what you were doing behind the drum kit as opposed to maybe just the technical exercise aspect of it because he wasn't coming, you know, from the ground up as a drummer. Like he didn't really necessarily care about a double paradiddle versus a flam diddle thing, you know, like he just cared about music and someone's sensibility about song form and listening and playing under a soloist and, um setting up color and texture and and you know all really musical stuff about what someone on the receiving end of what we're doing yes is and that's so insightful because um as drummers you know it can be so easy to fall down the rabbit hole of like you know maybe more complicated is better and stuff like that and uh when you're hanging 
and taking input from people that, you know, are going to be hiring you and stuff. It's just, it's really insightful to get that kind of feedback, you know? Yeah. So that, that was amazing. And, and what was cool though, was having the balance of that perspective with someone like Alan, who's like, you know, I remember when I, I was like so into Tony Williams at that time and, and I knew he had taught Tony Williams. I was just so excited. I'd be like, man, so on four and more and stuff and that live miles quintet stuff in the sixties and, Tony's going, you know, with the ride symbols. And man, how does he do it with the five strokes in the row? The ride symbol, those tempos and stuff. And and I remember Alan just like really, you know, clearly saying, hey, man, I don't think we need to be worrying about that stuff right now. We've got (laughs) so much, you know, to get going. And he really, at that point in my life, like this idea of getting a really solid technical foundation. I mean, I just couldn't be more thankful, you know. And then during all that, what was interesting about, you know, I was there and it was really a lucky time as far as the level players are there. Like um, Jim Beard was there. He was a couple years older than I was. And, you know, like he kind of I was played with him so much. And he's like and he's in Steely Dan now. And then this guy, Bob Hurst, who's this amazing bass player that went on to play with Wynton and uh, it's not, and he has an incredible jazz career. And anyway, all these players like Chris Bodie was there. This guy, Ralph Bowen, was there. Um at the same time that there was this whole jazz thing happening, um, Kenny Aronoff was living in Bloomington because that's where John Mellencamp was. Right, and Kenny right. had graduated from uh, IU about 10 years before I got there. Or, you know, he's a little bit older. And uh, so he, and this was in the early 80s, just when that whole thing was getting ready to explode in MTV. So, you know, I, man, I sought him out and he was an incredible inspiration. And uh, that was a whole nother way of looking at at the thing. So I was always exposed to really great teachers and then super hungry. You know, I followed Kenny around and just watched him all the time and took tons of lessons and uh, carried his gear and helped him set up and tear down and just being around his energy and his physical presence of the drums, you know, at that time, that whole kind of big thing that was happening with, you know, he had an incredible physical presence and he was trying to project to sort of the back of like a Madison Square Garden, like, you know, all the way back to the back row with his and and being around that but then also being exposed to someone like an alan dawson right all these it i it was incredibly lucky because i came out of there not with sort of just the blinders on of trying to be you know the jazz the jazz path and um having a wide range really helped me survive once i got to new york like the 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 more styles you can you know sort of swim in I think it's easier to pay the pay the rent, you know, as far as being able to do a singer songwriter. Right, and I feel like there there's so much of that that we're told early on when we're coming up and we're playing in jazz band in school, and our teachers are teaching us all different kinds of styles, and we're exploring the benefits of these different styles. And yet, one of the questions I had for you, knowing that you had come to New York and you had to cover a wide range when you were hitting the streets, doing all types of gigs. Do you feel like those skills are still booting, are still being put to practice um, to this day? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's wild. Like, you know, like even a thing like the SNL gig, like there'll be a time times where we have to... Um, you know, like Kanye came once and we had to back him up. And then all of a sudden, though, that it's Martin Short and we're doing some kind of Broadway thing. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, 
when G was running the band, you know, where he would have like like jazz cats, like Sonny, or not jazz cats, blues cats come in, like, you know, a Sonny Landreth or something. So like this whole idea, like in fact, there was a sign there at the SNL music stage that it's like all, all music styles played here, you know. And um, <laughs> that was sort of, you know, like, and then Lenny Pickett runs the band now and it's, you know, and all of a sudden we're having to do like Tower of Power type stuff, you know, and then yeah. we turn around and have to do kind of a bassy swing thing and then something that's more like, you know, up-tempo, like almost a punk energy behind some other things. So it's wild, the the different planets, you know, that get covered. And I think, you know, if, if you're looking to, to survive as a freelance musician, it's just something to think about. The more, the more things you can do, I think that it gives you the greater chance of, of getting paid, you know, in different situations. Yeah. Surviving. Well, I think one of the things, aside from understanding different styles, is the skill of being able to learn material very fast, being able to read the room and adapt. One of the things I heard you talk about was the way you write charts, and you have a way of doing it so that you aren't glued to the chart. Your head isn't in I, I did some big band work years ago, and... The, my it was an old professor of mine and then I was in his band after school and he was always like get your head out of the chart and it was such yeah. a valuable lesson to me uh even now when I I'm not doing a reading gig but I'm writing my own charts for last minute live gigs or even on a session and that very simple concept and so in hearing what you have done and the style of charts that you write. Could you talk some about that? I just felt like that was such a valuable skill in the way that you have created a style of chart writing. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's been really helpful for me to have this tool to like, like even for live gigs, like you were saying, like in New York, it's really interesting. Like if you're freelancing, you know, you might get called to be part of like a showcase at the bitter end, let's say. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it's a group of musicians. There might be one or two or three rehearsals and they put together like, you know, a 90 minute set or something. And, you know, having the ability to write the song form down, like for me, it's about understanding the big picture of the form. And so um, I kind of use like legal pad paper. And, but I try to be discreet about it because the interesting thing about this, the right charge is like, you know, there's situations where the last thing they want is a drummer to walk in with like paper and a pencil. And then there's other situations where they'll treasure you for that because you're going to remember, like, you know, if it's a demo session for songwriters where they're trying to do four things in like two hours, if you can listen to a demo and understand the song form and when they tell you, oh man, I'm really hearing this type of fill into the bridge if you're able to write that down and remember it and give it to them consistently every time, yes. you know, that's a great, that's a great thing that people will love you for. I think, especially if they're trying to get a lot done in a short period of time. And then by the same token, there's other situations where like, you know, if it's like a more of a punk orientated situation or something, they don't want anybody with any kind of pencils and papers probably within 30 <laughs> miles of what they're doing. So, you know, like having a radar for, for knowing when, when it's appropriate and, and all that. But um, so this system that I kind of came up with just for myself and it's wild. Like, I feel like everybody kind of comes up with their whole thing, you know, like Kenny had a way of doing it and mine's a little bit different. Like he'll actually write 
something things out a little more specifically i kind of get into the song form it'd be like intro you know verse pre-chorus chorus reintro you know whatever the song form is and yep. that will be kind of on the side and then i'll write how many the how long the phrase is if it's an eight bar phrase you know four bar pre-chorus or whatever's happening and then if there's important patterns that i need to know I'll jot that down, but it's not like I'll write out every eight bars of a verse, you know, and then if something changes in the chorus, you know, if it goes to the right or if the pattern changes, if there's signature fills, I'll sort of write that kind of stuff in. And um, it's the kind of thing that I, I don't have to stare at it. I, I can look at it quickly and understand what the form is and how long the phrases are. And then whatever signature things are happening, then I can hopefully, you know, nail that down by just take it you know but trying to remember all that stuff on a gig and then the next night having to do another showcase with another group of people because that's the trip about if you're if you're you know running around surviving as a drummer you probably got a lot of balls in the air with oh, yeah. that you know and uh you know it's wild though everybody has their own approach like um this thing i get to man i've had this really amazing opportunity to get to play double drums with steve gad yeah at this uh this is kind of this like uh, multi-artist, you know, like Robert Plant and then, you know, Gary Clark and, and J Jimmy Vaughn. I mean, it goes on and on and on. It's been about four or five years of it. And it's been such a gift, man, to uh, be able to be around Steve and see how he works, you know. And they give us charts and it's interesting, like, they've given us drum charts before. They've given us rhythm section charts. And then last time I, th I think Steve was like, hey, man, let's just get blank blank charts and let's write our own notes in you know and that was interesting it's like the form on blank blank music paper but then we're writing in the the things like we want he loves sometimes doing fills together because it can be so powerful you know with two drummers or you know banging the same thing out um and so just that's an interesting thing like he he has a way that he goes about it and everybody has their own way but i think it's a great survival skill to just have a way of looking at it, you know, because if you're freelancing, you're going to come up against situations that, you know, you've got to learn a lot of tunes really quickly. Well, one of the things I know you do is you use colors on the charts so that your eye is drawn to where it needs to go. You don't need yeah. to be counting out four bars of an intro. Uh, you, you, you need to, I mean, you're feeling those phrases that are naturally occurring based on Western popular music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and if there's a coda, if there's a turnaround, if there's a, an odd phrase, uh, a seven-bar verse, you, uh, I, I just, and I'm using an iPad now for a lot of charts and stuff like that, but in that program like Fourscore, you can use different colors. And when I heard you say that, I thought, that is amazing, because not only is it getting your head out of the chart and and you know, available for changes and listening and locking in, but it, uh, it looks better on stage because you're not looking over at that. Thing. Yeah, man. The color thing is really a lifesaver, uh, for me. I remember doing a gig and it was kind of this high profile thing and the light, the light. So I got, had all my notes and shit. And then the lighting was such that like, it was dim and it'd go really dim and then really bright. And then, so all of a sudden I had my shit, but I couldn't, it wasn't coming across. And so 
I started highlighting like the moments where it's like, stop, like, don't play, man. Are you going to get fired? You know, like this is a break and the drums are out. <laughs> like that would be in uh, like red highlighter or pink highlighter, whatever that Sharpie color is, you know. But it was very clear then on my charts that every time I see that color, that's like, man, don't play, you know. And uh, started using Sharpies and the repeats might be different colors and I'll bracket them in a way that it's, it's like jumps out of me. I... Anything I can do to give myself a break and help my help me not sit and stare at, like you said, not be in the paper because I don't really enjoy being in the paper. Um, so these these different color markings and like you said, if there's a coda, like I might put that in an orange highlighter and then where it's going to go back to that will be an orange highlighter. And then, you know, if the. Yeah, so I use, I, use, I do use I use colors. It's really helpful. You know, like a, a perfect example is I used to uh, cover sometimes for Anton on the Letterman show. Yes, and man, you know that they know like seven hundred tunes and stuff, and there's not really an official drum book. Like there's some horn charts, and then you know I think Will and them have have charts for some of themselves, but like. At SNL, there's actually a drum book, like because we have like a five-piece horn section, and so the arrangements are sort of more coming from this idea that there's a there's a chart for everything. Okay. But at Letterman, at Letterman, you would sort of get this massive song list, and then Paul would say, "Hey, man, you know, just pick some of these tunes out, and that's what we'll go with for the breaks and different." And then you know, I'd sort of like be like, "Oh man, well, I guess if I if I really try to tackle a lot of this, he'll feel like he's." flexible to do so you know i would try to like learn more shit but you know it's really a lot like you know so let's say errol smith's dude dude looks like a lady you know when mm -hmm. you know like the bridge i think is an odd bar phrase seven bars or so i can't remember exactly but you know like some of these tunes are they're just not straight ahead shit you know like some of them have crooked forms so man i had this massive like book of like chart charts that you know, for that gig when I was subbing sometimes that would just help me navigate the song form and understand, you know, the sections and uh, the different signature fills. Because Paul's the kind of guy, he's kind of got this photograph. Remember, I mean, one of the first times I played, it's like we were doing uh, Hold On, I'm Coming, the uh, Stax tune. Yeah. And the, the great Al Jackson and uh, Sam and Dave. And, uh, you know, Paul had been in the Blues Brothers in the 70s, and they covered a lot of that stuff. So he knew, he knows this stuff inside out. So so we're on the vamp out or something, and it's, hold on, I'm coming. And I think I maybe did a feel like some kind of Motown thing, you know, that was, it was not like outside of the language of, you know, the 60s R&B at all, you know. And we're done with it, and Paul goes, hey, man. I don't think there's any fills on that on on the outro of that, <laughs> and I thought I thought, oh my god, I can't believe he's he's, you know, I couldn't tell if he was sort of you know busting balls or what the trip was, and then it was just I went back and listened, and he was right. I think maybe the, there's one fill, and it's ta 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 or something, you know. There's no like ta 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 or ta 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 you know, and. Uh, so point being, like that was a gig where you're working for someone that uh, was very aware of the detail and minutiae of the thing and um, the fact that I could look down at something and understand what the signature fill was. I remember doing this, uh, there was some kind of crazy ASCAP awards thing and um, Stevie Wonder was on it and we were doing uh, Superstition and um, you know, it kind of has this signature fill at the beginning. There's a signature drum mm -hmm. fill at the beginning right. of the song, you know. And I think I 
you know, he wanted me to count it off. And then uh, I might have like played an eighth note more than what's on the thing, you know. And, and uh, man, he stopped and said, hey, let's 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 do what's on the record, you know. <laughs> and uh, and so we did. But it was just interesting. Like you'll work for people sometimes that, you know, they really want they're detail oriented about that. And then there's other people that don't want to hear what was on the record. And they want to hear what you're bringing to the table or so. I mean, it's wild how as a freelance drummer, you know, this can, the ball can bounce in, in a million different ways and um, kind of having an instinct for who you're working for and keeping your ears open. And, um, you know, whenever I work for Paul, I, I'm, gonna be cognizant of the idea that this guy he's way in the in the details he knows what's happening and you know i'm gonna pay attention with my getting it together to do the gig you know and pay attention yeah and i think that's one of the things that i I think i've learned so much in the recent weeks that i've been listening to your interviews and reading things is just how aware you have to be to the situation. And uh, I had a chance to have uh, lunch with a friend of mine, Mark Stepro, who is out touring with Butch Walker right now. And he's been playing with the, the Wallflowers this tour as well. And uh, he was on the podcast and he mentioned a time when he was in the studio and uh, they're getting sounds and he walks in with his chart and he says to the producer who's sitting there and getting sounds and wrangling musicians and said, hey, I think I'm going to go to the ride symbol on the chorus. What do you think of that? And the producer looked at him and said, yeah, fine, whatever. Why are you telling me? I hired you to do this. Uh, you're the drummer. Like, and it remind. And I had lunch with him yesterday. I said, I want to bring this up with Sean because that's another thing that, that is really lovely to hear is sometimes asking questions is great. Sometimes asking questions is not so great. And knowing when to just play, when to take that off the person's plate and be a team player or be, you know. And other times, like, man, he was really interested in what was going on. Could you expound a little bit upon that? Yeah, I love what you're you're leaning into with that. It's such a, it's such a, a thing of, to be sensitive to, I think, it's just far as it's part of the working with people is such a, a big thing in a studio. And like the man, there's producers. It's so interesting that, you know, like you said, they have eight, eight things going on with like getting a bass sound and, and the guitar player and then taking care of the artist and, and dealing with the label on the phone and all this different stuff. So I've always thought it was great to go in and sort of have a sensibility of, um, you know, being able to produce yourself and if you have an instinct for a snare that might work, just putting that up first and going for it and dialing in a sound that maybe, you know, almost like you were producing yourself. Now, the interesting thing, though, is that there's times where there's producers that love to hear themselves talk or love to, like, actually be the one in charge yes. and that they want a human drum machine and they need you to shut up and do exactly what, you know, or it, I mean, it's sometimes not that blatant, but, um, you know, so that's interesting. And then this thing that this story about when the guy said, well, I don't know, man, that's why I hired you. Like sometimes they'll like want you to dial, dial things in, but it can go every possible way. And then having sort of a sensitivity for what's needed. Like I remember this thing, um, 
I was like one of the mini cats who played on the Shakira record, the one where she's kind of holding the baby <laughs> on the cover. This goes back, you know, but like, I was like, I think the fourth guy that got called in and she was notorious for sort of being really hands-on about what she wanted and telling people what to do. And she had made demos and really the gig was transcribing her demos and giving it back to her note for note. And then, then after you did that, she might be open to sort of like, if you had any ideas, but you know, there weren't a lot of like drumistic ideas where you might fill into a chorus or, you know, there was, it was sort of um, linear from like a, a bedroom demo standpoint. And, you know, there's times where that's a great approach. So I, in, in telling this story, I'm not sort of passing judgment because all these ways can work, you know, uh, on her process. But it was more about understanding right away that the gig was doing that first and, tr you know, transcribing her thing, listening to exactly what she wanted. And that's what she needed to hear first. It's interesting with artists sometimes like, I heard this is a famous story, and maybe it was somebody told me Springsteen said this once, like, I hate a motherfucker with a good idea. <laughs> and, right. and I thought, I thought, wow, what did he mean by that? You know, and then it explained it like, you know, as sometimes an artist has a sense of vision about what they need to hear first, and they would like to kind of get that expressed and out of the way before, you know, everybody's chiming in with like, oh man, well, why don't we try this? We're on the bridge. We could do this. Or how about we modulate into this? Area? Or, you know, like it's, it's interesting getting, you know, having great ideas and maybe realizing that nobody really wants to hear them or that's not really why you're there or, or, you know, having a sensibility. And then there's other times where like, I think, uh, you know, people were talking about working with Rod Stewart that, if you didn't have ideas, you weren't going to stay on the session that long because he wanted input from everybody. So, you know, like this, this can go a million different ways and, um, and having a radar for it, it's a great survival skill, you know, to try to. And, and I almost feel like there's that gray area where you have great ideas, but you project it in such a way that it, it, you make it feel like it, the producer came up with the idea. Oh yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's a that's an art. That's an art. <laughs> art to that, you know, to to something to happen that maybe you kind of generated or something, but then it's really in everyone's interest if it feels like it was the producer that really came up with it. You know, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember there was a drummer, and I just one more a quick story on that. Like there was a drummer that worked with um, Phil. I got a chance to work with Phil Rowan a lot, you know, before he passed away. And um, he was really a magical guy and uh, a real inspiration. And it was an interesting kind of look in the way records used to be made, you know, like he would cast people in a room and then sort of sometimes get out of the way. And he'd have, he'd have input, but like a lot of times it was just trying to cast the right people and letting it happen. Who was this again? And then, uh, Phil Ramone. Phil Ramone. Okay, and, thank you. Yeah. And, um, I remember one cat said, yeah, he goes, I don't know, man. It was so weird when I worked with him. I didn't understand what the hell he wanted, you know? And I remember saying to him, like, well, what are you hearing? What do you want me to play or something? And uh, when I heard this story, the other guy saying, it, I just thought, oh, my God, he just kind of missed the, the big picture about what Phil was probably trying to do, which was put people in a room and get out of the way. And then if, if he didn't have an idea or input for the 
the musicians, it's like shining a light on the fact that he didn't at that point would probably be one of the worst moves you could make, you know, as opposed to just hanging until maybe it did come together or come back the next day or, you, you know, it's just wild, like um, calling someone attention to something like in front of the artist when they may not have a solution to it, you, you know, like sensitivity and to all sorts of, there's so many levels of shit that's going on, you know? Yeah. Have you recorded much in Nashville? A little bit, yeah, yeah. There was a time there when um, this Sean Colvin record I played on, it got Song of the Year and Record of the Year. That was like, I think, the mid to late 90s. And um, there was a window of time, yeah, like a little bit when that was happening. That um, And uh, Wayne Kirkpatrick was a guy that, uh, one of the producers I used to, to work with some. And then uh, Michael Rhodes is a great bass player down there. Yeah. Done, done some stuff with him. And... Um, but you know, Nashville is a great scene, man, as far as uh, the infrastructure of all the studios, it, the shit works and people are in a room together tracking and all that. It's interesting about New York, like what sort of started to happen uh, when the hip hop thing got really big. Uh, a lot of the studios, you know, were being used for that. So the kind of the maintenance of like, just I remember going to Clinton was a great studio. Uh, Clinton Studios is no longer there. and. You know, it was this session for Bob Dylan's thing, and the tie lines weren't like the maintenance of the studio had sort of dropped to it, you know, and it took a while to get the session off the ground because there had been so many sessions where it was just in a, an NPC and a rapper, you know, happen. And so um, it's interesting about, I really respect Nashville for the everything works and people are, you know, getting together in, in the room at the same time and making it happen. And it just seems like the years have passed that sort of started to evaporate in New York a little bit. Interesting. It's kind of one of, one of the questions I, I wanted to ask you. There, there's a bit of a pace and a style in which sessions are done. I mean, obviously all over, the, all over the map, but here in Nashville, like on Music Row or different places where there's demos, it's very fast, it's very in and out, um, kind of uh, almost to a fault. And then the master sessions are a little bit more you know, attention to detail oriented, but still it has a style and a pace to it. And I was curious to know what that was in New York, or if you, if you notice playing, recording in different cities, whether it's Los Angeles or New York or wherever, where you're just like, okay, I'm going to LA, so I'm going to expect this on the session. Yeah, no, I like what you said. I do think Nashville has a thing about, you know, being on the card and three hour blocks and the, the 10 to one and the two to five and the six to nine or how all that ever breaks down, you know, and, uh, yeah. and I, you know, it's interesting. I can see what you're saying that maybe the pace of that sometimes somebody might say, Oh, you know, they don't take enough time to this, that, and the other thing. But when you think about some of our favorite records, like, you know, a lot of that stuff, it, some of it did go down quickly. I mean, you know, Fleetwood Mac took whatever, two years to do rumors, you know, but like some of the classic stuff from the 60s and, you know, if it's Hal Blaine and they're cutting like, you know, they're moving quickly. And um, yep, yep, yep. in in New York, that can happen too. Um, the jingle thing, it's interesting about that. Um, I, w I was at this dinner with Jack Douglas, the famous producer, you know, guy that did Aerosmith and, and tons of stuff. And he was talking about like cutting his teeth in New York as like setting up and engineering and doing like the uh, 
the quick turnaround stuff for jingles. And he was saying what a great like training thing that was for like having to pull a session together, you know, and all have it all make from tracking to mixing come together in like three hours, you know, and like, uh, you know, a string section might come in and a horn section. And, and he was talking about the discipline of like having to move quickly and make it happen. And I remember being, you know, in the nineties, there still was a trinkle of sort of that, that ebb and flow of the, that, that kind of work. And, you know, it was, um, I thought it was a really great experience, you know, uh, to have to move quickly, to have to get a sound on a house drum kit. Um, there's a lot of discipline involved sometimes in a good way of having to move quickly and not maybe falling into your own, your own butthole for eight hours, you know, trying to get it right. Uh, the right. Sounds. But you know, the, it can be argued a, a million different ways. The other thing is, is that, you know, with home recording and having all the time in the world to sort of um, experiment and do stuff like that can really lead to some great results, you know, but it's interesting. It, it can happen both ways. It's wild about recording. There's no like, there's no rights or wrongs. Records get made in so many different ways, you know, and I, I think that leans into that's the, more true. Flex, the more flexible you can be. Like, um, you know, I remember there's been situations where it's like, well, that's not what, that's not we, what we did when that, that hit happened, you know, or something. And then, you know, but by the same token, like there's other times where like a first take ends up being a really successful track and it happened all within one day. And then, you know, the, the other side of it is it can take months and months. So, it's it's uh, the mysteries of what we do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. And and when I first started recording at home, one of the things that I discovered is I didn't have somebody saying that was the one. You're done. Stop. And because I mean, you can you could do fifty takes on something, and it's like okay, you need to cap yourself and be done and move on. Man, that is so interesting. What you're talking about? Yeah, because you know all of us that have setups where you can record at home and all of a sudden you're producing yourself, you know? Yeah. And I think it's a great, it's a really great to, to, again, it gets back to that thing we were talking about where you're almost on the other end of what you're doing. You're seeing what you're doing, you know, and hearing it. And, um, that sounds working. It's not, um, you know, you're rushing here or you missed that or that fill just didn't lay right. And, um, it's so wild to hear, hear yourself and have to produce yourself, and um, it's it's insightful, like if you end up, like you said, spending, you know, doing like 20 takes on something and you go back to the first one and maybe that's really the one, you know. And, <laughs> I know. Um, it tends to be. That's interesting. All of that. Yeah. Um, and that can happen in the studio, too. I think, you know, whatever the process, whatever it takes, like if um, if you're chasing something, you know, and it, you go down a rabbit hole, you know, you can just learn from it you know it's really interesting the mysteries of all while that. we're on the home studio thing um how do you manage how have you learned to manage the back and forth uh because you're not in the same room and the person's not right there saying you know what i like what you're doing in the bridge but could you do this instead and it's immediate now we have to kind of anticipate what the person is thinking and you're kind of going back and forth so how are you doing that in an efficient way so that you're not making the $50 tomato. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, that gets back into this radar thing and sensitivity to who you're working for and what their process is. And do they know what they want? 
Mm-hmm. Or they think they know what they want, but they don't really. And then, you know, like that phrase, a picture speaks a thousand words. Like a lot of times if if I get a sense that my instincts that or at least that I would love to get my approach on this first and let them hear it and then, you know, like come up with something that I'm in love with. Let them hear it. And without maybe asking a million questions up front, like, okay. yeah. you know, yeah. If, if I kind of understand how I want to approach it. And then if it's, because sometimes when you get into a bunch of back and forth before, it just opens up words, people trying to communicate about something. And then the words that they use can throw you down a different path than what maybe your initial instincts might be. So, and it's also the demo, maybe how good the demo is. Like there's been times where if somebody gives you a incredibly you know, great demo where it's like, it's kind of obvious, like, man, they really just want a real person to play what's yeah, happening yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's an instinct for that. Like, uh, like this is working and let's not reinvent the wheel and let's give them what they want. They just want a real cat doing it. Um, and then there's other times you get a demo where you can tell that they don't have any idea. And the drum, the drum thing is just totally bizarre. Or maybe there's no drum thing. And so, you know, different approach for that. And, um, but I find that when I get something, having the perspective of how what they've done to it already can be insightful and have a lot of clues. But this thing about communicating, you know, is I, there was a famous drummer who was talking about how difficult they thought this process was. And, and I agree, it's, it's definitely not the same as being in the same room. But um, I think, I think th- it's okay to be able to, uh, you know, communicate and send, send something and have them hear it and then get feedback or maybe they'll hear it and they'll be convinced that your approach was just totally perfect right away or maybe it's going to go through 30 revisions. You know, it can go a million different ways, but um, it's definitely different, but it's part of the survival skill of doing this whole home recording, you know, thing. And I know on some website, on some platforms, you can say, hey, we, uh, in this price, I'll include two or three revisions so you kind of put a cap on it and say, look, have an idea of what you want. I'm, I also work with a producer that does a lot of, we, we do a lot of remote tracking together and he'll talk to the client or the songwriter and say, include a, a couple examples of what you're uh, looking at or what you're looking for so that we can reference, a reference track, sorry. And that's been really helpful to get to what they're looking for pretty quickly, especially to maybe a songwriter that has less experience in, you know, performing and, and writing and music theory, and et cetera. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that. I like that idea about the reference thing. And even if, like, the part's completely different, but if they're, like, in love with the drum sound, you know, yes, that, can, yeah, be, yeah, that yeah. can be insightful. Like, all those kind of clues... Yeah, yeah, that yeah. can be really helpful. Sometimes yeah. it backfires. They just send their favorite songs. I'm like, how oh, this has nothing to do, but it's a <laughs> okay. That's cool. They're they're in love with this. I know you're from Missouri, and I'm from Ohio. And uh, again, bringing up uh, my buddy Mark Steprow again, uh, he said that you know living in New York and living in Los Angeles, and Mark's from Ohio as well. One of the things he brought up was he felt like being from the Midwest was like a superpower. And um, I'm trying to think of the drummer Billy uh, played with Joan Osborne for a, a yeah, while. Yeah, Bi- 
Billy Ward, yeah. Billy Ward. Yeah. From Cincinnati originally, he said, I just feel like when I'm, I've been working in New York that I, I can always pull that card of I'm, I'm just this really nice guy from the Midwest. And, and Mark brought that up too, that dealing with different personalities in different situations in these sometimes intense uh, environments can be like a superpower. And, and I don't know, just listening to you in interviews and everything like that, I just feel like you have that as well. Uh, have you noticed that about, about yourself that you carry that with you? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I, I think there's something there. Um, you know, if you have a Southern accent, you know, or something, or like I lived in Louisiana for a while and then Arkansas and then, um, you know, and, and in Missouri. And I think that, you know, like with the Saturday Night Live thing, you know, it's kind of coming from that tradition of the Stax thing and the Roger Hawkins thing with Muscle Shoals. And, you know, I think GE loved the idea on paper that I was from the Kansas City area, you know, at, at you know, just as a talking point. I mean, obviously, you still got to be a, a good musician, you know, and, and all that. To, but I think there is maybe something to, well, to people that love that kind of music, you know, when they feel like they, they, uh, that there can be something to that for some people, you know. And, um, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, just being able to, like, calm the situation and, like, just be, be a solid person and just predictable and you know i i don't know i'm just uh well no but it's interesting like uh i i got to um hang around levon helms some before he passed away right at that right. midnight ramble thing and play with him and be a part of some of those and he was really magic in that way that you're talking about like he had that southern charm and charisma and there was an inclusiveness that he he you know new york can be clicky sometimes there can be sort of this uh i mean it's an incredibly brutal place to try to survive you know i mean i mean this business is is really difficult right. man if you're trying to really like put a career together not just month after month but year after year decade after decade it's really it is the music business is a bitch and levon was really you know, arms open to like everybody. And he had that thing about him. And, uh, that's not, you don't always see that in New York necessarily or in, in the music business. And I think, you know, part of that, that Southern thing that he had leaned, leaned into that, you know, the kind of, uh, everybody's welcome and let's just, and also let's just have damn fun, man. Let's just have some right, fucking right, fun. Right. That's why we do this. Yeah. And, and that, you know, it's easy to lose sight of that. Sometimes I think when you're, you know, in New York, like, you know, when I first moved here, like, you know, the truck, my truck got stolen, like people selling crack. I moved here in the early 90s during the crack epidemic and, um, you know, walking drums up four flight walk up, you know, after a gig and, and um, it, it's getting up in the morning and moving your car from one side of the street to the next. I mean, it's it's really a rough town for drummers surviving, you know. <laughs> And uh, but you know it kind of puts that crazy thing in your eyes and that that edge that people I think you know when they talk about New York musicians 
you know, that stereotype that sometimes they they have. You know, I, I think living here forces, you know, you either can survive, you either survive or you die, you know, <laughs> or something. Right, right. <laughs> like, it's really, it's just, it's rough with the, uh, man, the drum thing and, the, and figuring all that out in New York. Yeah, um, yeah. One of the things uh, that Stephen Wolf brought up when we had a chance to chat was he feels like there's uh, a homogenistic sound coming from young drummers. Uh, And it may be just the access to information like never before. We're all watching and being inspired by each other and young players and old players alike. But there's less of of a unique sound uh, coming from from a player where a lot of our favorite drummers, if it's Matt Chamberlain or Billy Cobham or whoever, you when you hear them, you immediately identify who they are by their so- sound and their style. And you have that. You have this this just recognizable touch and pocket and swing to your playing that um, not only do we hear, but we've had the opportunity to watch um, over the the decades that you've been working at SNL. Where do you think that came from? Uh, Do you know what I'm talking about? Are you hearing it? Uh, Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I I love Steve. And I think that, you know, this is interesting. It's an interesting topic. And I remember... Jerry Murata, like big, you know, both Rick and Jerry, great, just such great yeah, drummers, and such um, a hero of mine. Yeah. So you know, Jerry is one of these guys that's really creative and will like uh, come up with something really left field and create, you know, uh, sonically like choose a sound or an approach and like, like I remember seeing him play. You remember those Dow drums, the TOS, yeah, yeah, like yeah. those any <laughs> drums. And I remember, I remember having to do something with Cheryl. Cheryl Crow once and then Jerry had just been in the week before and she was like well do you have any of those those Indian head drums that that Jerry has as and you know and I was like I'm one of those guys that brings in lots of options and percussion and all sorts of shit but I didn't have a fucking skinhead skin. yeah I didn't have but where I'm long story longer is that I asked Jerry once I said man you're I just love your approach and how creative you are and and it's just so unique and and your own voice and and he, he, I thought what he said was so interesting about like, you have to be in a context where that is encouraged or allowed, you know, like, so he meant, he meant, you know, like if you're hired to play, let's say on a Celine Dion thing or, or somebody that's more straight ahead, you know, like they, they may not be open to the Indian skinhead drum kit approach, you know what I mean? Or like, um, and so what I think is interesting about what you're talking about, like, like some of the great personality drummers that we love, like, like let's say a Stuart Copeland or like a Keith Moon, like they were kind of in one band and had a personality that was a signature to that sound and incredible, you know, but when you go out and freelance, like, you know, I remember somebody saying about one of the producers, a producer that they actually liked how his imprint was sort of transparent. Like he had produced all these different records and all these different artists, but it wasn't, let's say, a signature to the thing. Like if Daniel Lanois produces an art, it's obvious that like, you know, Daniel Lanois produced oh, yeah. it. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and that should be treasured, uh, obviously, and to have your own sound and your approach, I think, you know, that is a really great thing to aspire to. Where I'm headed, though, is that if you're freelancing and surviving 
and working in a lot of different contexts, like we were talking about when, you know, when we first started talking, you know, there's going to be situations where you can't do the left field creative thing maybe that you want to do or, or you know, like, you know, Matt Chamberlain is just a, a, such a great example of what an incredible voice and, and some of the choices he's made and sonically, you know, with parts. But there's probably situations where, you know, um, he might have to stay more to the center at, at times, you mm-hmm. know, or, or something. Mm-hmm. And so this is interesting about the context that we find ourselves in. Are are we able to, to, to make a statement or is it like, um, you know, it's better to just go straight down the middle with it? And, uh, you know, Steve Gadd's a fascinating example of this because he'll play with, uh, let's say, Paul Simon, but then turn around and be with Chick Corea at the Blue Note. And you can still, you know, obviously tell it's Steve Gadd, but, you know, some of that is his sound and sort of the, you know, the the pinstripe heads on the toms and his cymbal sound and and his touch, obviously, you know, his vocabulary is is all his own. And, um, but I don't know if we're, we're all not Steve Gadd, obviously, but I I think this idea of, um, if you're working in a lot of different styles, you, you know, sometimes you have to, like the, the Shakira thing is an interesting example. Like, I don't know if she really wanted a personality player as much as she just needed someone to be a human drum machine, you know. But, but I, and, and not to push back, but, but I feel like that you understanding being a working drummer and having a personality, just knowing when to apply that and knowing when to you know, okay, this needs to be more straight ahead and, and have that skill to, to use it or not use it. Yeah, that's a great survival school. But I guess this idea, though, of everybody's personality being able to come across sometimes, like, you know, with sound replacing things that are happening mm-hmm. now, and, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, it almost feels like it could be, you know, with time correction um, and everything that can be done. Like, I remember somebody talking about you know, an engineer went out to the drums once and started, you know, just getting sounds and they recorded it. And he was kind of a, you know, a, a drummer that could keep a beat, let's say. And, you know, all of a sudden they were able to make the track come together by cutting together his, his you know, just getting a sound. And it worked out fine. You know, like, I think one of the Kelly Clarkson things, it was... Um, the drummer that played on one of the big hits was like the janitor at the studio, you know, and... and um, he obviously was, you know, a, a, probably a great drummer. It's just interesting. Like, I think before we had some of this uh, technology, you know, you actually had to be able to play like a five-minute track from beginning to end and, and make it all work and stay in time and have great feel. But now you could almost, what's the joke, you know, like, oh, that was great. Come on in and we'll fix it, you know, like after. Yeah, like, yeah, guy, or no, yeah, what's that Pro Tools joke? Guys, that was awful. <laughs> right. Come on in. <laughs> yeah, right. And so um, I love I love what Steve's talking about, you know, and this idea of, of, of cats and having a sound, but it's just interesting out there in the real world if you're, if you're working a lot, sometimes you don't have the opportunity to maybe. Sure. Uh, have your personality stamp all over everything. So, so I'm wondering though, if, uh, uh, just to propose this idea your way is if you can project something that's unique to your sound in a world where everything can be replaced and fixed, they're like, okay, I can't get this sound without this player. 
here. So hire this drummer to do this session because they're perfect for your record, your song. Uh, we can't duplicate that sound. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. if you're able to create and cultivate a sound, a style, whether it's, you know, tonally performance wise, your, your sense of time, your swing, then a producer or an engineer or a songwriter has no choice but to keep you busy, put you to work, because it can't be re- recreated on a computer. Like, how do we sidestep uh, technology in a way that keeps us employable? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and I guess I keep coming back to the context. Like, you know, let's say when that era, you know, with that Sean Colvin record and the, the singer-songwriter thing, and all of a sudden people hear that, and then they hear that, you know, other singers let's say female singer-songwriters heard it and wanted to sort of, you know, have that same group of musicians involved. Uh, yeah. And that ha- that happened, you know, and that does happen in the business. Like, they'll put the same team together or, or feel like that. You know, I remember David Spinoza talking about this, who's a great uh, guitarist here in New York that, you know, played on the Aretha stuff and doctors, anyway, legendary musician. But he was talking about the superstition in the business about, you know, having the room cast with the same people that maybe had this hit, you know, and, and this thing. And so there is something to that and the confidence factor, maybe a producer looking out and, and seeing that, you know, this is this is a group of musicians that have had success, you know. Um, but what's interesting, if the artist ends up being something where you know, the sound of what we're hearing on the radio today from a hit perspective is kind of more homogenized. And and I don't know if it's the, is it the drummers or is it really the producers? And then like the engineers get the tracks and they sort of sound replace everything. So all of a sudden maybe the, the snare drum sound that you brought in and crafted for the track gets replaced yeah. with, you know, drumagog or something. And um, so... And then the reason why the mix engineer did that or the, the mixing final mix engineer did it is because he's getting pressure from the label to make it sound like this. And so it's wild, like all the interchangeable elements in this chain, you know, of how records are made. And um, especially in the pop world, especially when you're trying to produce something that's going to be competitive on the radio up against that Kelly Clarkson track. Yeah, the yeah. Shakira track. It's like, well, that's the snare sound that's got a pop uh, when Kelly Clarkson comes on and that ends and then your song comes on. People are going to tune it out unless we are in the same ballpark. Yeah. And then it's it's a cat and it's chasing the tail a little bit of like what's what's out there. And, you know, it's fascinating to like if you listen to, you know, a top 100 playlist, it's amazing how many you know, the the role of real drums isn't necessarily what it was like in, say, 1978, you know. <laughs> you know, about, you know what I mean? It's wild. Well, 1988. Like yeah, and, and that which is so great about someone like Steve, you know, Steve Wolf being so smart about, you know, being involved in the programming element of things and, uh, and the playing element of things and, you know, crafting tracks that uh, involve all the different dimensions that go into how records are made now, you know, because the romantic era of it all being done with like, you know, Rick and Steve and Chris Parker and great players, you know, from that era of, um, you know, I, I, that ship may have sailed, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. So, so it's, yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. 
One of the one of the last things I wanted to to ask you about is watching you for years on Saturday Night Live has well it's just it's so fun it's been a joy and it was kind of one of the first times before YouTube was a big thing that we could watch consistently a drummer perform whether it was you or Anton or anybody else that we could just kind of dial in on a regular basis and there was so much energy in this physical presence that you've had in the way you play. And I, when I, when I, when I see myself play, I, I feel like I'm moving, but I'm not moving as much as I, I should be. I don't have that. And I know that your time with Kenny might've been part of that inspiration, but it's, it's been really helpful to either video yourself or watch yourself in some way to know that your, your body is all moving in such a way that is creating groove uh, and it's loose and it's moving and it's all contributing to this great feel. And I feel like you're the, the, the poster child for this type of physical movement and... Um, I don't know. I, 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 do you, have you, have people talked about that with you, the way you move, the way your body moves, the way your head moves, it just, it just a little bit more than I see other drummers do. And it just, it's an inspiration. I'm like, I need to do, I need to be more like this. Well, I've always, I've always loved drummers that I sense that they, uh, you know, have rhythm in their body or a sense of dance, that there's a sense of dance Yes. in their body somehow. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, and I, I remember when I would see Tony Williams sometimes, he had that thing with his left foot where it would almost dance left to right, constant eighth notes or the fast quarter note thing, or like he had um, a pulse in his body, you know, that was like a timeline, it felt like. And um, I remember having a lesson once with Victor Lewis, the great jazz drummer, uh, it was a group of drummers, and he made us all play just time with the ride cymbal. And he talked about that whether you were playing like an, a broken Elvin thing or this, that, but this idea of having the like the two and four, like and I don't know how to explain it, but he did this whole thing, bringing up the the sense of swing in kind of internalizing your body, and uh, you know, it related to sort of dance and having. You know, I, I, I love the idea of that. I'm so all in on, you know, drummers that when you hear them, there's something magically that's happening from a, a feel standpoint where you just want to move your ass, you know. And I remember, I remember Lenny, Lenny Pickett's been amazing being around, you know, because he was in Tire Power with Gary Baldy and he's played with so many amazing drummers. But he talks about, you know, going to clubs where, you know, you would go see the person that made you want to feel like you wanted to move and dance, you know, as a drummer. Um, and you know, just that, that James Brown lineage of it, they just, it's just the wall is sweating cause the shit feels so damn good, man, you know? <laughs> and, and it's like, it can be the same language over and over again. You know, when James is talking about don't play a fill, I remember doing some drunk gigs with, uh, with Gordon Edwards, the bass player that was in stuff, you know? And like, Cornell, it was Cornell Dupree and Gordon, and you know they did not want to hear a drum fill. They wanted the drummer to just sit on this pocket and make it happen and just feel insanely good, you know, with just this this one thing. And so, 
I, I've always been, you know, I love to go see Bernard Purdy play, man, and he has that magic, and it's just uh, just magic. You know, these cats that have such a great feel, and you're sitting there soaking this thing up, and you know, they, you can tell that there's rhythm in their body, and it's, it's, it's related to dancing somehow. Um, you know, there's the other side to this. Like, some people, I think it can be distracting for some people. Or, oh, man, what is he you know, it, maybe some people think it's selling it too much, or you know, they, there's. It's not for everybody, but I know I just love that that side of drummers that where you can tell there's rhythm in their body, you know, from a dance perspective, and that they're all in on the groove thing. I could I could hear you with the sound off. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well it, and and has it because uh, you know we've we've talked in the last couple of years about injuries, repetitive stress injuries and things like that. And tension is one of the key components to what leads to these injuries. And I'm curious to know if this natural approach that you've had has, has, has it kept you pain-free? Has it, has it, you know, I mean, just moving as, as we play decade after decade, um, or have you had to manage anything? Physically. Well, yeah, I, man, the physical, man, the physical relationship of a drummer is so interesting. Like, um, you know, it's one of the first things I noticed is like, you know, how a guy, the sound he's getting and how he plays a room, you know, and, and volume wise and how he's, the sound, how, if he's, are the drums muffled or they're wide open? And is he, is he kind of the balance of his kit? Like this one thing about that Steve Gadd thing that's so amazing is being next to him and hearing mm. how his sound like you know the the bass drums really present in a cool way the cross stick sound he gets is like the most consistent beautiful cross stick sound uh i know it sounds crazy but you, you know like how it can be hard to get a great cross stick sound sometimes mm -hmm. and yeah. and nail it and anyway his touch is just incredible um so uh this thing about you know, there's that Tai Chi thing, that uh, that Asian thing that uh, sometimes you see older people doing it, and it's sort of this really slow dance, and it's a sequence of movements, but it's uh, really very fluid, you know, and it's sort of a, it's like a martial art thing, but like super slow and not not really violent or aggressive. And then the yoga, the yoga thing, man, has really helped me survive. I remember reading about Sonny Rollins being into that back when I was in the jazz, uh, and my mind was all about that, and... Uh, I remember checking it out when I was in school and then it's sort of later I got into it and it's been really helped me maintain sort of a, like a loose fluid thing, you know? Gotcha. Um, so I've always tried to be like really body conscious. I remember in the eighties I was in a band and it's kind of like this R and B dance band. We worked all the time and it was a great group situation. And, um, but you know how everybody used to have their crash symbols up really high and stuff, you know, like Steve Jordan with the Letterman Band thing, and I was such a fan of his. But um, I've I've kind of brought everything down and kept this more um, thing where you know the motion between all the instruments is a lot more contained as far as like you're not reaching you know really far and to come back from a crash symbol, let's say. And uh, so I yeah I put a lot of time into thinking about how to save my body and make make it easy on myself in that way you know like uh trying not to, to reach too far for something and and um you know like the thing like the tai chi just the awareness of what that's about so are you doing tai chi thing. as well are you doing that i did it for a while 
and I really loved it. I've kind of been consistently on the yoga train lately, and that's really helped me. <laughs> the yoga you know? train, I like that. Yeah, yeah. It's a great that, show. Right, so. yoga train. <laughs> right, right. Not as popular as yeah, Soul yeah. Train, but it was... Uh, was trying to well, I, and I saw you. The, the, I've seen some videos of you playing with gloves, not drum gloves, but actual, like, go to Home Depot and buy these gloves. Yeah, that's wild. You know, <laughs> I picked that up. Like, I remember when in the eighties, you know, we were all hitting so hard, and I was in this band. I was trying to just protect my left hand in a way from like the um, the shock of like four sets of two and four, you know, playing as strong as everybody was trying to play back then, you know, cause yeah. it's like everybody was trying to, you know, born in the USA, you know, and they're like the snare drum or on some of those Prince records from that era, you know, the snare drum is the loudest thing in the mix with like everybody lost their mind, you know, with the drums sometimes with how, how big they were like the snare drum thing. And uh, so anyway, it was kind of a holdover from that and it just helped absorb some shock into my hand, you know, instead of just taking it. And um, so, it's just been a sort of a survival thing for me, like just more like absorbing some shock and, and trying to like not, because like, I knew so many people that ended up having carpal tunnel issues and freaked yeah. out things, you know, that from that era, especially, you know, so. Um, Are you still using, do you still use gloves from time to time? Sometimes, yeah. 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 And, and, what, uh, and what are they? Because I'm really, I'm really curious about it. I, I, I do gigs in Nashville where we're playing three and a half hours straight. And it's it's loud and it's heavy and I'm not 20 anymore. No, I hear you. Well, I've gone hurt. through different. Uh, yeah, I've gone through different phases. Like um, this this crazy glove that I think you're referencing that I used to use all the time was it was like goat skin or or lamb skin or something. It was it was a thick like almost baling hay kind of vibe, but like the more comfortable leather, you know. Yeah. And and so and. Um, now I've gone to a thinner thing when I had to do it, and sometimes I don't do it. But, man, I do a thing where um, I might have some rubber bands on on my, on the, uh, like if I play with the butt end with my left hand, if I hit that be hitting hard, I'll have some rubber bands at the tip end of the stick that just helps the stick sort of stay in my hand and I can have a really loose grip. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also, I, you know, for the big rock thing, like Tony Williams used to play, uh, like, you know, you know, when Tony started playing the big Gretsch drums with the, uh, the black Dots dot heads. Mm -hmm. and the, Yeah. And, you know, everything was sort of single stroke orientated, like, you know, and like he played, he played that grip where you hold the stick back in the, the, I don't know, it's some kind of timpani grip, I think it's called German or French. I'm not the exactly The French grip with the, yeah. Mm -hmm. But it was more about in the last two fingers and everything being very wrist oriented. So, you know, and you can get a really big sound that way because you're kind of like the language is just big single stroke, big sound, you know. And uh, so if I had to play like that out, I, sometimes I use a stick with um, some rubber bands to help the thing sort of stay there so my grip can be super loose and I'm not taking in the tension from the drum. You know, but then then there's times where, you know, you have to adjust that if you're playing, you know, with ghost notes and different subtle things. So it's it's a moving target. But it's wild with this. I was I did something last uh, last last week with it. It was the New York Philharmonic and it was sort of a rhythm section in the and it was amazing. It was just a brand new David Geffen Hall thing that they re redone. And I went back and I was talking to the timpani player and uh, his sticks had these sort of uh, interesting uh, things on the end of them that you could tell he could keep a very like loose grip and the sticks wouldn't fall out of his hands. It was uh, sort of a, uh, 
styrofoamy kind of like thing on the end of the sticks that was oh, a pad yeah. and it was a, anyways it's fascinating to see you know because it's parallel to sort of the concept i'm talking about where you can play with a big loose grip and the sticks not flying out of your hand you know yeah know yeah, yeah i know it sounds great and it's probably only applicable to like when you're playing big and loud and having to project to like an outdoor shed you know and you it's right. simple and in your face there's a there's a great uh say live at the bitter end in 2018 you're playing with will lee and you're doing a trio gig and you've got those gloves but man i i mean there's there's so much finesse coming out of your hands even with those those gloves yeah. that that's kind of what registered with me is like man that that's like that's not slowing him down at all yeah yeah it's crazy it's interesting i mean i've gotten used to it through the yeah. years and uh, but it has helped my hand not get freaked out from like just all the the shock from from beating the shit out of things you know yeah. your whole life <laughs> uh, it, yeah. i have one I, I i seriously have one last question for you and th this is kind of a, a, a selfish uh query i have about watching you play trash can endings I am inspired by the way you approach the ending of song. I, I feel like you do it in such a way that's so different than every other drummer I've seen. I, I'm not good at it. I, I, I have like two chops. And, I, I, and so I never know what to do at the end of songs. I mean, I, if, if a cymbal swell works, great. There's a couple things that I've seen drummers do where you're kind of... But, but one thing I've, I've, I've heard you do a couple times is you almost play like a groove, like this kind of like left-handed groove, slow, different time, just like... But you're playing something. But it's not... You're not doing some sort of Vinny thing that is this flurry of a chop but it's like it, it it it's it's still musical it's it's drums falling down the steps but it's still musical and and i can wrap my head around it and i'm like i i love that i love that what are, are you aware of of that well, yeah, it's interesting when you're talking about, you know, having two chops cuz like sometimes i feel like i have like one chop, you know, in that like <laughs> it's it's um it's it feels easier for me to you know you can play in those kind of moments it's not like you're playing over you know a seven four samba vamp and 200 beats per minute and really having to, you know it's like you know it's sort of the the end of a thing and but it's a it's been an it's an opportunity to sort of project from your heart you know or be like i'm also attracted to just crazy fucking drummers too you know like like the kind of thing that like damn that motherfucker is crazy you know like the kind of people that might break shit or you know like you never know what's going to happen and those endings like i mean there's some influences like what i remember seeing elvin live a couple times you know and sometimes elvin would do that shit like he okay so it's a ballad maybe and he's playing mallets and he'd come to the last chord but then he'd like take this extended you know 30 second fucking thing to just close the door on the tune you know that was like <laughs> it was just would be insane and and like elvin was a type of presence where i mean you could see the most childlike innocence in his eyes and the love of everything and then you know the the exact opposite where it was like you really had the devil in front of you and like this is insane evil bad motherfucker you know and uh so like you know he's an interesting example of somebody that would do that like the, at the end of a tune sometimes and it would be just like this whole another journey you know um there was this guy in indianapolis john von olin who 
Yep. P- people probably don't talk aware of him enough, but he played with Stan Ken's big band, and he had sort of this loose-limbed approach to you know big band drumming, kind of Elvin influence, very round and circular, and um, he he had that thing together where there would be like a thing, and this falling down the stairs kind of a thing that you're talking about that was loose and and wide, and uh, it, I just remember it was exciting to see, and it was a it's a moment like. Because I'm not such a great drum soloist, it's a moment to sort of maybe put your foot up in it uh, in a in a way that you don't have to necessarily play great time or play play licks and 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 stuff. It's like kind of just you can make music and like you said, you know, I I love the whole motific thing of like if you are blowing, trying to make music and saying something, you know, motif motif wise. Because uh, I don't have a lot of the tons of chops that can, you know, go. And um, so these these endings are like kind of that. I'd start Charlie Drayton. I've seen him do that. And, you know, he was an influence in that way where it's just like just just badass, you know, statement at the end of something that's just, yeah. you know. So I think it's um, it plays to something that I love what I see other people do where, and it, and it is a way of, um, making a statement, um, and, and kind of projecting from your heart or, or just sticking your foot up everybody's ass and saying, you know, fuck it, motherfucker, you know, <laughs> or, you know, whatever you're, you're going to say on, on it. But like, it's, it's can be an attitude moment, you know, t- t- cause I, 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 I like that when I see, see that sometimes. That, that, that That's so helpful to hear you say that. Uh, and, and as opposed to I, what am I doing? What, what do I do now? And be, be self-conscious of that. But you're saying, no, this is a, this is a fuck you moment. And that, that I also, it's amazing. You bring up John Von Olin. My last interview I did was with Gary husband and John Von Olin was a huge influence of his early on. And we started our interview talking about John and John lived in Cincinnati and I had a chance to see him when I was a kid. And the big band I mentioned was uh the the the, the leader was uh played in stan kenton's band and new Was it the blue the blue wisp big band in cincinnati was that at the blue Wisp? yeah that's not the group i worked with but ah. um but right he he was in that group and um, yeah but just um yeah he had something about him and i was too young to wrap my head around it completely but i knew there was something about him with his big drums and big cymbals and everything. And yeah, it's so amazing. You bring him up. What a, what a, what a force. Well, I love that about, did you talk about Gary? Uh, it was Gary Hobbs. Is that our uh, Gary who, husband, or, Gary husband? Yeah. Um, well, so I'm trying to remember if there was a, a guy that played with Stan Kenton, um, maybe Gary Hobbs. I don't know if that rings okay. a bell in the late seventies, but, uh, they used to have those Stan Kenton, uh, band camps, you know? Yeah. And, and I remember like there would be one in Springfield, Missouri. And I remember going there as a, like a, in junior high or something. And it was such an amazing opportunity. And then I remember Weckle being there mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, a little bit older and just like an incredible, it was already like just incredible, you know? And I remember that, I think it was Gary Hobbs, maybe that was playing with Kenton band at the time saying, you know, this guy is going to go on to be like one of the greats, you know? And then of course yeah. he did. And, um, but Von Olin was, yeah, a part of that legacy and a really unique voice in the big band thing. And he kind of had that really round Elvin approach. And, and he would do that falling down the stairs thing that was just like, 
it's just great, you know, really great. Yeah, yeah. I, I learned so much from the recordings of him and playing drum fills with a crash cymbal as as was something that was new to me as a kid and like, wait a minute, you're supposed to play drum fills on the on the drums and end with a crash cymbal. But he was fitting them in, you know, in places not as stabs, not as, you know, with the horns, but as just part of this uh, setting the band up, but not afraid to use a cymbal as well. Right. And, and yet touching it and striking it in such a way that it was just a such a beautiful accent. Yeah. Yeah. He was unique. He had a unique voice, man. He was yeah, cool. He yeah. was really cool. As do you, my friend. I oh, mean, man. geez, I've so enjoyed listening uh, to so many recordings and, and there's m- so much to choose from. And um, yeah, I, I, I felt like there was some of that was uh, I, I was I was trying to transcend some of your grooves on a couple songs I played last night where we didn't nobody really knew the song but like well this is kind of the feel and I'm, immediately I'm thinking what would Sean do right now you know how he set yeah, yeah. this up because <laughs> that's what inspires man it's what it's it's what inspires us and keeps us moving forward as as human drummers if you will yeah well man I really appreciate you having me man yeah thanks so much thanks so much man thank such you, an thank honor you. and thank you for your time and thanks for being flexible and making yourself available yeah all right we'll we'll keep don't stop doing what you're doing with 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 this man because it's really it's it's a real gift to uh, all of us and it's gonna be around you know for yeah. everybody to learn from um, all these interviews it's just amazing so thank you you know thanks Sean I appreciate you man so much and um, have a great rest of your night all right yes everybody keep on grooving <laughs> all, right. all right see you man all right take care yeah bye bye. So there you have it, my conversation with the amazing Sean Pelton. Man, is he like the coolest guy ever. Uh, I just want to take notes on all the little phrases that he uses and the way he carries himself. He's just uh, the epitome of cool. And uh, maybe one day if I ever grow up, I can be more like Sean Pelton. But I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Pat Petrillo. Um, he, Pat is an amazing drummer and he's got a new record out and I know they get into that so that will be out next week but for now everyone thanks so much for listening try and stay sane and hope to see you around bye bye